Welcome to Calvary Tabernacle. Uh, If you would, turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. If you were here last week, then you know we went through Jonah chapter 3, and this is the the fourth week in a series uh, all about this story in this book of Jonah. And uh, so this is where it all ends. This is the last chapter in this uh, short but very entertaining book of the Bible. Uh, It's a prophetic book. In other words, it's uh, one of the books that follows along the life and the message of one of God's prophets. And uh, it's it's an incredible, it's, it's a it's a very insightful book, but it's also a very entertaining book. Like, if you just read it, just its literary style is just so entertaining. Like, whenever you read it, you're, you're left hanging, uh, you're wondering what's going to happen, and, and then things are just thrown at you that you just don't expect. So it's been a wonderful book, and it's been a, a wonderful several weeks looking at this book. But we're going to finish up today uh, here in chapter 4. Of Jonah, and let me go ahead and spoiler spoiler alert this for you. Uh, the chapter ends, but the story's not finished. So as we read today, what it's doing is it's trying to get us to look introspectively at ourselves to see how we would react or respond if we were in the shoes of Jonah. And just as a really quick recap of this story, God tells Jonah to go to a city called Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh is the enemy, the Assyrians are the enemy of Jonah and his people Israel. God tells them to go to Nineveh and tell them that in 40 days they'll be destroyed. Jonah doesn't want to, so he runs away the opposite direction to a place called Tarshish. And he gets on a boat, and he's, he's heading out, heading to Tarshish. He gets on a boat, and he's, he's trying to get away from this uh, message that God has given him to share. Uh, we all, we're all familiar with this story. A uh, big storm comes up, and the sailors on the boat, they throw him overboard. He gets swallowed by a giant fish, which probably isn't my idea of a good time. I don't know about you, but uh, he's in the belly of this fish for three days. And while he's in this belly, uh, chapter 2, we hear this prayer that he gives, and, and God commands the fish to spit him up onto dry land, and then God gives Jonah a second commission to do the same thing. He tells him again, go to Nineveh and share the message that I have given you. And so we see that Jonah, finally in chapter 3, he reluctantly obeys. He, he does what God tells him to do, but he doesn't want to do it. And uh, we see that whenever he gives the message, the people of Nineveh, they are stumbling over each other to go to repent and pray and to turn from their wicked ways and to change their minds about their sin. And that's where we left off last week talking about the subject of repentance. Repentance. And we've always heard repentance taught as being, you need to turn from your sins and turn to God or you're going to burn in hell. You know, turn or burn. And that's the way we've learned what repentance is, but whenever we look at the Bible, we see a completely different picture of this idea and of this word. Uh, Repentance means, does anybody remember? Anybody from last week? It means to change your mind. It comes from a Greek word, metanoia. Meta meaning change, and noia meaning 
mind. So the whole word repentance and Jesus' whole message when he came to earth was repentance. What he's saying is you need to change your mind. You need to change the way you think about your sin. You need to turn to God because the kingdom of heaven is here. And so that's where we're picking up today in Jonah chapter 4. So let's read this real quick. Starting in verse 1. Uh, also, as you know, God changed his plans about destroying Nineveh. He never destroys them uh, at this point. He does about 150 years later, but not right here. Uh, but it says, this change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. And it's at this point of the, of the story that we finally see what Jonah's been harboring in his heart all this time. He says, the word says in verse 2, so he complained to the Lord about it. He's angry, so he complained. This is what he says. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? I don't know if you ever had that parent that, that told you to do something, you didn't do it, and they come up to you, didn't I say? Like, I just imagine this is Jonah's heart, this is attitude. Didn't I say that you were going to do this, Lord? I told you you weren't going to destroy them. Look what he says. This is him complaining. Uh, that is why I ran away from Tarshish, or two Tarshish. He said, I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, God, you are just so slow to get angry, and you're just filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. That's what Jonah's been holding in all this time and throughout this whole story as he's running from God and gets on a boat and gets thrown overboard and gets swallowed by a fish and vomited back up on the land and he reluctantly goes and preaches the word. This is what's in his heart. God, I knew that you were going to relent. I knew that you were going to show mercy. I knew that you were going to show grace. How could you do such a thing? And verse 4 says, the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? And then Jonah stormed off to his room. <laughs> he went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. We already know that God changed his mind. We see that at the end of chapter 3 and at the beginning of chapter 4. But Jonah's like, maybe, just maybe, the Ninevites will screw it all up again and God will strike them down, you know. So I'm just going to go and just wait and see. Verse 6 says, The Lord arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. Remember, he's in the desert. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. And the next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. And I'm not sure if he was still in Nineveh or East Texas at this point, because it sounds the same. But death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. And then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. I don't know, but it sounds like Jonah was a little suicidal at this point. All he can talk about and think about is death. Verse 10, then the Lord said, You feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly, and it died quickly. 
But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? The end. That's where this story ends, and there's no uh, sequel to it. There's no uh, uh, Jonah book number two. I mean, it it leaves you like Hollywood in a Marvel movie, just on your... You don't know at the end of the movie whether things turn out how you expect them to or hope them to. You don't know uh, if the villain dies or if they're going to come back in the next movie or, or if the hero is, is going to be able to save the day again. You're, you're just kind of left on the edge of your seat like a good movie would do. It just kind of leaves you there to try to think and wonder and imagine what happens next. We don't know. I mean, we, we look at Jonah. We, we don't see. We don't ever hear about Jonah again until Jesus walks the earth thousands of years later. And he mentions Jonah in passing to some, uh, to some religious leaders. But we don't know the end of this story. Does Jonah repent? Does he change his mind about his ways? Does he finally go along with what God has, has been working on his heart to, to do? Does he die there in the desert waiting for Nineveh to be destroyed? Does he go back to Israel and live his life? Like, you know, we, we don't know. The story just kind of ends. It's just a dead end. It stops right there. But that's on purpose. The literary style is, is to draw you in so that you think about your own life. Because all this time for these four chapters, you're thinking about Jonah. What would I have done if I was in Jonah's shoes? What would the correct response be? And then all of a sudden, boom, story's over. You got to look at yourself now. You got to imagine what you would do in this situation. I don't know about y'all, but the way that God arranged the word is just so beautiful. The way that he put it together, it's fascinating and it's entertaining too. The title of today's message is this. Jonah and the new perspective. Jonah and the new perspective. If you remember last week, we talked all about repentance, changing your mind. And we see that here in chapter 4, God's dealing with Jonah's heart to try to get him to... Come on, y'all help me out. Y'all got to remember, I'm a youth pastor. I'm used to people talking all the time. God's trying to get him to change his mind. He's trying to get him to change his mind. Good job. All right, so right here we see that, that God's trying to get him to change his mind, but how many of y'all know that's easier said than done? Do any of y'all know someone that's really, really stubborn? Like, is there someone in your family? <laughs> I see some, some, some of y'all are like, I know someone. Let me tell you, I got stories about my husband or about my wife or about my friend or about my cousin or my aunt or my uncle or my sibling. I could tell you about stubborn people. How many of y'all know trying to change their mind is not gonna happen? I mean, there are just some people you're like, you know what? I give up. Some of y'all looking at your spouse. You got to stop that. (laughs) My goodness. We see Jonah here, he's, he's got his mind made up. He's got his mind set on what he thinks is right, what he thinks is good. But Jesus' main message when he was here on earth was repent. In other words, change your mind about your sins. Turn to God because the kingdom of heaven is here. That was his message. Now, I don't know about y'all, if, 
if my wife was in here and I was to ask the question, do you know anybody stubborn, she would have raised her hand very quickly because she knows that I can be very hard-headed, very strong-willed, very stubborn. But I know that it's better for me to try to look at things from a different perspective, to try to gain God's understanding on the matter because I know that I'm not always right. I feel like I usually am. You know, all the stubborn people do, right? But I know the truth is I'm not always right. So how do we get to that place in our own individual lives where we can say, you know what, I've got to change my mind about this. And I don't want to. It's not comfortable. It it might be hard for me to, to do. But how do I get to that place where I need to change my mind? And so here's point number one. If you're taking notes, write this down. In order to change your mind, you have to understand God's character. Understand God's character. So I've got three points today. And for each one of these points, I want to uh, show us a flawed way of thinking that most of us, probably all of us at some point in time, have thought. And maybe you haven't thought it, like processed it in your brain, but maybe even just subconsciously, you know this is there. So uh, whenever it comes to understanding God's character, our flawed thinking is everyone's out to get me, so I've got to take care of myself. You might not have ever thought that out loud or said that out loud, but subconsciously, we all have this thought. Man, everyone's out to get me. I've got to take care of myself. I've got to look out for my own interests. And I know people that won't do a single thing until they first assess how much it's going to benefit them. And if we're being honest, for most of us, that's how we base our decisions. How is this, if I make this decision, how is it going to benefit me? What will I get from it? I hope maybe that, that someone else can get a benefit from this decision too, but ultimately our minds are, how can I benefit from this? But to be able to take that flawed thinking and change our minds about it, we have to understand God's character. And can I just say this this morning? God loves you. Amen. And his character is good. And his plans for you are good. And he wishes that no one would be destroyed. That's his character. He's loving. He's kind. He's generous. He's good. Jonah, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, he's complaining about the Lord. But notice in his complaint, all he has to say about God is good things. He says, didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away. I knew that you were merciful and compassionate. I knew that you were slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Listen, that's God's character. That's who he is. But a lot of us in our lives, can we be honest real quick? A lot of us, we love the characteristics of God, but only when they benefit ourselves. But listen, we can't, if we're going to change our minds about our sin, we have to understand that God's character doesn't change for you or for your worst enemy. For you, for the church, or for the terrorist organization. His character is the same. He does not change his character. In fact, Hebrews chapter 3, or 13, verse 8, 
says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same. He doesn't change, which means if his character is good and beneficial to you, his character is going to be good and beneficial even to your enemies. And this is what Jonah struggled with. He said, Lord, I didn't want to come over here to Nineveh and preach to these heathen, godless people because I knew you wouldn't destroy them. I knew that if they repented of their sins that you would show mercy on them. And I don't want that. How many of us have thought the same thing in our own lives? About people or about things or ideas or systems or political parties or, or whatever the case may be. Like we'd rather someone fail than to come to repentance. Ouch. That's hard to take. It's hard to take. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness, his character, is intended to turn you from your sin? God's kindness is intended to help you change your mind. It's his character. And if we're going to change our mind about our sins or about the people that we have to deal with here while we are on this earth, we're going to have to understand his character. And his character is beneficial for you and it's beneficial to those that we look at and perceive as being the worst of sinners. I've told this story before, but I was driving home from Dallas one time. <clears throat> I was on the interstate just, just on this side of downtown Dallas. And I was, I was going, you know, three to five over the speed limit. You know, nothing, nothing to, you know, they say cops will allow you five miles per hour over the speed limit, although I've heard that they don't have to. And uh, I found this out that day. Uh, but I was driving home. I was in the, the slow lane. There wasn't much traffic. Someone comes flying past me. I mean, I was going maybe, you know, 65, 68, and the speed limit was 60. And I mean, they, they come by me so fast, I feel like I'm going six miles an hour. And I'm like, my goodness. And I remember thinking this, I hope so bad, so bad that there's a cop over this hill. I hope so bad that this person gets pulled up. Wouldn't it be nice if here in just a couple of miles, like, you know, I'd be driving along and I'd see those red and blue flashing lights, you know, behind their car. And, you know, I could just be passing, you know, going a safe, you know, speed. And, and as I pass by, just, you know, do the little Y'all laugh because y'all done it too. Y'all thought the same thing. It wasn't five minutes later. I see those red and blue flashing lights, but they're not behind my boy that just came flying past me. They're in my rearview mirror. So I pull over on the side of the road. What do you think I was saying in my heart? God, give me mercy. Lord, show me grace today. I wasn't even going that fast. Like, I mean, come on, Lord, please show me some mercy. I don't want a ticket. I don't want to have to pay a ticket. And isn't that just like us? We want justice for our enemies, but we want grace for ourselves. Listen to me. God's character is beneficial to you, but it's beneficial to others as well. 
And we've got to come to this place in our life where we realize God's character doesn't change based on our emotions, based on our feelings, based on our situations. God's character stays the same. And the quicker we can understand that, the quicker we will be able to change our way of thinking about sin, about our own stupidity, about the places we go and the things we do and the the way that we talk, because we'll understand that God loves others. God loves those around us just the same as he loves you and me. Someone say his character stays the same. He's so good. And when we fully understand the character of God, or when we more fully understand the character of God, then we will be more accepting of his perspective on things. That's point number two. If we're going to change our mind about our sin, we've got to gain God's perspective. Gain God's perspective. Our flawed thinking, whenever it comes to this, this is what we think subconsciously again. We think, no one knows me like I know me, so I know what's best for me. That's our thinking. Like, no one knows me like I know me. No one knows my inner thoughts. So how can anyone know what's best for me? I know what's best for me. And so what we do is every decision we make, well, what's going to benefit me? How, how's this going to be better for me? Like, I'm the only one that knows me like I know me, so I know what's best for me, so I'm going to make a decision that's going to do me good. Well, to get rid of that flawed way of thinking again, we've got to understand God's character, and we've got to gain God's perspective. That'll help us change our minds about what we're thinking. How many of y'all, you don't have to raise your hand. You, you seriously don't have to raise your hand. How many of you find it hard to listen to someone else's perspective? Like whenever it comes to making a decision or uh, um, anything in your life. How many of you are like, man, and again, don't raise your hand. How many of you are like, it's so hard for me to like go to someone else that has a different perspective than me and say, hey, what do you think about this? The fact is, most of us, we don't want to do that. And if you've ever been in the business world, then you know that a lot of companies, they build their board of directors around this idea that we've got to have differing opinions. We can't just have all the same demographic of people on a board of directors because we need other people's ideas, other people's influence in our decision-making. But in our personal lives, we don't want that. We know our way. We know our plans. And I don't want anybody getting in my way of what I've got planned to do. Let me tell you, I am the world's worst at this. I am awful at this, and I've got to force myself sometimes to to gain other people's opinions. Just last week, whenever I preached, uh, before Saturday night, before I preached, I asked Emily, I was like, can you read over my notes? Because I've got like this many notes and about this much time. And I was like, I I don't know what I need to keep in, what I need to cut out. And, And she's like, oh, I'll look at your notes. Trust me, you preach way too long all the time. I will look at your notes. She knows that because she takes care of the kids while we're up here. And so, anyways, she looked through my notes. She's like making marks on my iPad here. Yep, you can get rid of this. You can do that without that. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't tie in well. And she's going through it. And I'm like, oh, like, 
that hurts. Like, you know, I've spent hours and days and weeks studying this and, and preparing. And she's like, but it don't make sense. You don't need it. People are going to be bored with you by the time you get halfway through. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. You're right. So I cut out half of my sermon. Everyone said amen. But here's the thing. We need to be a people that will say, I could be wrong. And although I feel like I know myself best, I really don't. Because I have a creator that knitted me together in my mother's womb. And he knows me way more than I know myself. He knows my secret thoughts that I haven't even been revealed to yet. Like, he knows my heart, not just my mind. He knows my heart. And listen, if we're going to be able to get past our, our stinking thinking, we're going to have to understand God's character, and we're going to have to say, you know what, God? I'm going to take my perspective and lay it down because I want your perspective. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, There is a path before each person that seems right. But it ends in death. <laughs> I love the writer of this Proverbs here. He spares no punches. He's like, hey, listen, I know what you're doing. It seems right, and you think you've got it all figured out, and your plan is foolproof and solid. Uh, but you're going to die. <laughs> like, really? Like, you, you, you put that there. Like, he could have said, you know, there's a way that seems right to man, but it ends in pain. Or it ends in suffering. Or it ends in frustration. No, he just cuts straight to the chase. No, nope, you, you're dead. If you're going to go with that plan, you're stupid. It's not going to work for you. Don't do that. It's like the Holy Spirit's like, you've got to change your mind. You don't know what's best for your own life. You think you do. But you've got to learn to put down your perspective and put on God's perspective. And how do we do this? Does anybody know? I'll give you a hint. If you want to know God's character, where do you go? Do you go to your friend that's got screwed up theology? <laughs> you go to the Word of God. If you want to gain God's perspective, what does He think about the issues? What does He think about what you're going through? Where do you go? You go to the Word of God. If you want to gain His perspective, you go to His Word. Not only that, but you have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to speak to you. He wants to speak into your heart, speak into your life. And if we would allow him, he will. And if we would just open up our hearts, we could actually understand his perspective. I love this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. It says, No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit. And... No one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. Verse 12 says, And we have received God's spirit so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. Church, that's beautiful. Listen, no one can know your thoughts except your own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts. No one can gain God's perspective except God's spirit. The good news is that he has given his spirit to us. 
We can understand the thoughts of God. We can understand the will of God. We can understand the ways of God. They're not beyond finding out. He is a good God, and he wants us to know his will and his perspective. And I love this in in, uh, Jonah chapter 4, the very last verse we read. This is God's reasoning for why he shows mercy. He says, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? I think a lot of times we look through the word of God and, and we see these little bitty pieces that are just sandwiched in between something else and we just kind of just brush over it. God mentions the animals of Nineveh. We're talking about the people of Nineveh repented. The king said, hey, put sackcloth on your animals too. We're all fasting and praying today. And, and God's saying, hey, look, I should feel sorry for this city. Because there's 120,000 people there that don't know their right hand from their left hand. And all of the animals too. This shows just how deep God's mercy is. That if an animal could repent, he would save an entire city just because an animal repented. Like, come on, how slow our God is to anger, how quickly he is to avoid destroying people. That He's like, man, listen, if, if for no other reason, I could spare this city just because of the animals. Y'all, that's a good God, that he is that merciful and that kind. In Romans chapter 8, verse 20, Paul is speaking to the church, and he says, against its will... All creation, someone say all creation, was subjected to God's curse. All creation, that includes animals. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Y'all didn't know the Bible talked this much about animals, did (laughs) y'all? He's saying this. All of God's creation felt the pain of man's sin. And all of creation waits in eager expectation of freedom from death and decay. That's pretty neat. That's pretty neat to me. You probably never heard of them, but there's a bird called a red-billed quelia. They are mostly prevalent in Africa. And they are the most abundant of all wild bird species. There's over 1.6 billion of these birds. And they nest and they live and they feed in massive flocks. In fact, the largest flock on record consisted of over 40 million birds and took more than five hours to pass overhead.
They'll find the trees that these birds are nesting in, and they will rig them with explosives and firebombs. And then at night, whenever these birds come in to nest, while they're all snug in their little beds, these farmers will flip the switch, blow up the trees, and hopefully the nest and the birds with them. It's not uncommon for a single small farm to capture or kill over 200,000 of these birds every single year. And they say the population of these things keeps growing. The farmers can't even put a dent in the population. They grow so quickly, so fast. What's interesting to me as I was studying this is these birds are considered a sparrow. Anybody know where we're going with this? In Luke chapter 12, verse 6 through 7, Jesus wants us to gain his perspective on how valuable we are, and he says this, what is the price of five sparrows? Two copper coins? You can't even get a whole copper coin out of each sparrow. Yet, God does not forget a single one of them. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of red-billed quelia. This is incredible. Jesus is giving us God's perspective on how valuable the human heart is to him. He doesn't, he doesn't, Turn a blind eye to one single one of these birds that farmers can't kill fast enough. He knows every single one. He provides for every single one of them. And how much more valuable are you? More than an entire flock of one million red-billed quilia that are destroying farmers' crops in Africa. He loves you, church. And he wants us to gain this perspective. But here's the thing. If, if our thought is only on, hey, my plan is the plan. There is no other plan. I can't do anything else because I know what's best for myself. Then we'll miss out on all that God has for us. He's saying this, take your perspective, set it aside, and pick up my perspective and put it on. Because if you want to know what I really think, you need to know how valuable you are. Man, God, you're so wonderful. Thank you, Jesus. We need to understand his character. We also need to gain his perspective. And here's the last point today. If we're going to repent, we have to submit to God's word or God's will. This word right here is God's will. This is his desires for you and me. And if we want to change our mind about the way that we think, if we want to change our plans, if we want to change our own desires, we're going to have to look at God's word and say, you know what? He knows best, and I'm going to follow him. Unfortunately for most of us, we've got this flawed thinking that says, nobody tells me what to do. I do whatever I want. This is our flawed way of thinking. Like, hey, no one is going to be the one that dictates my life. 
Especially here in America, aren't you? Y'all know we're this way, right? It doesn't matter which political party you fall under. We've all got this arrogance about us that we're just like, you know, no one's going to tell me what to do. Mm-mm. You don't tell me what to do. I'm my own boss. <laughs> but listen, that's not the way of the kingdom. In the kingdom, we need to learn to submit to God's will, submit to his way, and only by submitting to God's will will we be able to change our way of thinking. We have to submit. Jonah in verse 3, he says, just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. God, this is what Jonah's saying. He's saying, God, it's either me or them. Either destroy them or destroy me. Either show them mercy or show me mercy. But God, you're not having it both ways. Church, if we're being real honest... This is our attitude with God a lot of times. And how many of you know that that's a flawed way of thinking? We read it in the book of Jonah, and we're like, Jonah, you're an idiot. You should have known better than this. You're a prophet of God. But if we're being honest, we can all say, hey, somewhere deep inside of my heart, I'm trying to twist God's arm to do what I want him to do too. Whenever it comes to the subject of fasting, we talk about prayer and fasting. Most Christian Americans have this idea that fasting is somehow a bargaining chip with God. Like if I will starve my body, then maybe God will do what I want him to do. Can I just let you know that's a flawed way of thinking. But this is what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is this. Subconsciously, we all have these same thoughts. And Jesus came to say, hey, you need to repent. You need to change your mind about what you think is right. You need to change your mind about who you think I am. You need to change your mind about your own plans and, and learn the desires of God because he knows you better than anyone. And when you do that, the only way you're going to do that is by looking into this word and saying, you know what? This is really hard for me. I don't want to do this, but God, I will submit to your word. This is tough. I, my, my fleshly years, I don't want to hear this, but you know what? If this is what's best for me, then I will do it. I will submit. Now, this word submit, I think it's been abused too. It simply means to come under, to come under someone's authority. As believers, we need to come under the authority of God's word. It's not optional it's not just the good idea, but as believers, it is necessary for us to say, I'm going to make myself smaller and allow God to be bigger in my life. We've got this idea that we can fit God into our lives when it's convenient for us. <laughs> you might want to pick your toes up off the floor if that hurt. We feel like, you know, God, I, I can fit God in on Sundays. Yeah, I, I can fit God in here and there. You know, I'll say a prayer on, you know, certain occasions, you know, whenever I really need him. But listen, that's not the way it works, church. It's our job as believers to fit our lives into the plan of God. So many of us have made so many plans, and they may be fantastic plans. You may have an idea for your life that is just amazing. And it'll be great, and it'll be financially secure, and everyone's going to be happy. But here's the thing. If you've made those plans outside of prayer and fasting and fellowship with the Holy Spirit, then the chances are 
your mind is nowhere near submitting to God's word as it should. We've got to take our plans and say, God, I think this is a good plan, but I'm going to set it out here before you. Tell me what you think about it. And whatever you say is what I will do. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, it says, From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem. It was necessary. And that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders. Someone say it was necessary. Didn't sound good, but it was necessary. And the leading priests and the teachers of religious law, Jesus began to tell them plainly that he would be killed. Someone say it's necessary. But on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. But Peter, oh, Peter, he took him aside. Hey, Jesus, Jesus, can, can I talk to you for a minute? You know, I, I hear what you're saying, but can, come over here. Let, let's just have a conversation took him aside, and he began to reprimand Jesus for saying such things. Jesus, heaven forbid. This will never happen to you. Why are you saying these things? Jesus, don't you know that we're not gaining followers right now? We're losing followers. And it's probably because you're saying weird things, Jesus. Like, it's not necessary for you to die. That's crazy talk. People are losing their trust. They're not following you anymore, Jesus. It says that Jesus, in verse 23, turned to Peter and he said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, from a human perspective, not God's perspective. And then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. You must take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. There ain't nothing you can do about it. He says, but if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. What is Jesus doing? He's trying to change their way of thinking. He says this, what do you benefit if all your plans succeed and you gain the whole world and everything just looks just how you planned it and you are financially secure and you're going on these extravagant vacations, and everything worked out just like you wanted, what would you gain if all that happened but you lost your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? And I love that Jesus asks these questions. He doesn't just tell them, hey, you're wrong. <laughs> Better luck next time. Try again, Peter. <laughs> he says, hey, what, what are you going to gain? With that way of thinking, what are you going to gain? Truly, yeah, you, you might have financial success. You might have uh, relationships that are bearable. I mean, your kids might stick around and, and, you know, still call you every couple of days or weeks or whatever. But what will you have really gained? If doing that, you had to lose your soul. 
He's saying this, you, Peter, you've got to change the way you think. You've got to come under the authority of Christ. You've got to come under the authority of God. It doesn't matter what you think, Peter. You've got to change the way you think. It's the same for us, church. I've got a little illustration I want to show you. So many of us, we think we've got a great idea for our lives and how our lives should play out. But how many of you know, uh, what, what, how's the saying go? Even the best plans gets laid to rest. Is that, is that how it goes? I don't know. I'm not that old. I might not know correctly. I'm still a young guy. Even the, even the best the most well-made plans are laid to rest. However it goes, I don't know. But I want you to think about this saying as being your life. All the individual moments of your life, all the things that you've said or done or, or had planned to do, all the interactions you've had with people around you, all these individual moments, and, and you're like, man, I've got a good plan for my life. I think I've got a good grasp on what my life should look like or be like or sound like or feel like. And, and we get this mentality that I can do this. I'm the only one that knows me like I know me. So I know it's best for me. Can nobody tell me what to do. I'm my own boss. I want to be my own person. And, and what we're doing whenever we follow along with those flawed ways of thinking is we're saying I can handle. I can handle what life brings to me. I can handle every moment. I can handle every argument. I, can, I may be dropping some, but, you know, for the most part, my plans are going as expected. You know, and I, I think I can handle this. I think I can do this on my own. But the more life comes at you, the, the more you try to grasp onto it, the more you realize, I, I, can't, I, I can't do this. This is hard, and it's slipping through my fingers. It doesn't matter how hard I try to grip life. It just keeps falling apart, and I just keep, I feel like I'm losing it. Have you ever been to a place in your life where, like, I just feel like I'm losing it. Like, I, I feel like I can't hold on anymore, and, and we finally think that we've got a grasp on things, and then the world turns us upside down. We realize, oh, there's a hole there that I didn't know about, and, and this is what God is saying. Listen, you can try to hold on to your own life, but you're going to end up losing it. It's going to end up falling through your fingers, and then what happens? Storms of life come and unexpected things happen and, and this life that's so beautiful and, and kind of fun to mess with and play with, all of a sudden it becomes a little messy. And we're like, man, that, those were my plans. Those were my dreams. Those were my desires. And it was beautiful and it was, it was great and it was fun. And God says this, listen, if your plan is to try to hold on to your own life, you've got to change the way you think. Can I be real honest with you today, church? You can't handle it. Life does things that are unexpected to believers and unbelievers alike. 
That's the world we live in. That's this fallen, broken world that we call home. There's going to be things that are outside of your control. But God is saying this, if you will allow me to take your life, what you thought was messed up and muddied and, and soiled and, and, and broken, if you will give it to me, I can make it like new again. And if you will allow me to blow my breath on you, I can do incredible things. Sorry, Miss Diane. Church, we have to know that no matter what we try to do in this life, if we keep thinking the way we've just always been thinking, because we think that that's going to work for us, you're going to be disappointed. Things are going to be painful. But if you would give your life over to Christ, it doesn't matter how muddied up and how soiled and, and damaged you think your life is. If you will put your life in the hands of God, he can make something beautiful out of it. He can turn those things that you thought were dead and gone into life again. He can restore and redeem and rebuild a broken heart and a broken marriage and a broken relationship. And, and he is the God of second chances. We see it with Jonah. Jonah rebelled and went away and, and God stuck with him and said, Jonah, you're the guy that I have for the job. And then even after Jonah went and obeyed, although it was reluctantly and he had a terrible attitude about it, in chapter four, we see Jesus over or we see God over and over again saying, challenging Jonah, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah, is it right for you to be upset with me? Would it be right for me to kill and destroy these people? Jonah, you have to quit looking at things from your own perspective. You need to repent. Someone say repent. And he's not saying this, Jonah, you need to repent or you're going to hell. What he's saying is, Jonah, you've got to change the way you think about your life. So here's the thing, church. We can never turn from our sin and turn to God. That's what we've been taught repentance is, turning from our sins and turning to God. But you can't even do that. Why? Because you've got a fleshly nature and your flesh desires the sinful things. You want your, your flesh, your human nature desires those sinful things because we have been born into sin. This is our nature. But Jesus comes and he says, listen, you'll never be able to turn away from your sin if you still want it. Because you might turn around and walk towards me for a little while, but deep down inside, you know you still want that. You know that pornography is still addiction for you. You know that broken relationships somehow give you some sort of reasoning to your life. Like, I don't know what it is, but there's something about the broken system of sin that we just, our, our nature just craves. Jesus says this, you'll never be able to turn away from it if you still want it. You have to change your mind about it. You can't just change your direction. You've got to change your mind. And when you change your mind about it, when you repent, then I will change your heart. I will make you into a new creation. If the worship team would come on up. 
Repentance doesn't mean to change your ways. It simply means to change your mind. And please hear me, if you've ever struggled with this, this was Jesus' main message. Repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is here. In the Old Testament, this is the old law, and to be made right with God, to be made righteous with God, you had to do works. You had to bring a sacrifice. You had to, to do that. If you haven't ever read, you need to go back and read the books of, of Leviticus and Deuteronomy where God gives all these laws for, for man to follow in order to be made righteous again. But when Jesus came, he said this, the way to be made righteous, to be made right with God, is to change your mind. Take your mind from what you thought you've always wanted and what you always desired and decide, you know what? My fleshly nature wants that, but I'm going to choose to have faith instead. I'm going to change my mind. And this faith thing, it, it may sound strange. It may sound kind of wacky. It may seem kind of out there, but I know that if I can put my faith in God, that he will redeem every situation, that he will redeem every relationship, that he will heal every bit of brokenness. He's a good God. And for us to get to that moment where we can say, God, I repent. I changed my mind. I changed my mind. Listen, in, in Romans, it, it said God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. In other words, what he's saying is this. God is better than what you've always thought you wanted. It's his kindness that causes you to change your mind and say, you know what? That's not as good as I thought it was. I'm going for something better. I'm going after something better, something greater. I'm going to trade all of these rags and this filthiness for the glory of God in front of me. You've got to change your mind. How do we do that? By understanding God's character, by gaining God's perspective, and by submitting to God's word. That's how you change your mind. If you'll do those things, you'll find that those things you always thought you wanted or needed aren't really that important anymore. And the things you're going after, so much better. The person you're going after, so much better. So if you would stand with me this morning, I want to encourage you this morning to repent, to change your mind about the way you've been thinking. And I don't know what that means for you or what that looks like for you. Our altars are always open. If you want to come to the altar and pray, you're welcome to do that. For some of you, repentance may look like going to your spouse and apologizing. For some of you, repentance may mean changing your mind about the way that you do business or handle finances. For others of you, repentance may look like deleting your social media and turning off the news for a little while. Maybe someone needs to apologize to a child or a parent. I don't know what that thing is, but each one of us has something inside of us that we need to change our minds about. And I want to encourage you, whatever the Holy Spirit puts on your heart to do this morning as we pray, just do it. Change your mind about what you thought it was going to look like or what you thought may happen afterwards, and just do it. Come under submission to God's word. Ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, give me your perspective on my life, on my, on my choices. 
and understand in your heart that God is good. He's not asking you to repent because you're just some dirty, rotten, filthy sinner. He wants you to repent because he knows that it will be good for you. Jesus, we thank you for your word. And I pray this morning that each and every single one of us, that you would just point out to us in our hearts what we've been harboring, just like Jonah. He was harboring so much confusion, so much bitterness, so much anger. God, I pray that you would show us what is in our heart and that you would give us the courage to change our minds about it and to live in submission of your word, your will, your plans, and your character. In Jesus' name, let's worship together.